0: Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Jose Arnold. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. With the creation of the Row Canada Company following the Second World War, Canada became a leader in the aerospace industry. Setting up shop in Malton, Ontario, at the former Victory Aircraft plant, Row developed the C-102 Jetliner and the CF-100 Canuck, the first Canadian-designed military fighter aircraft. In 1953, at the height of the Cold War, the Royal Canadian Air Force, the RCAF, commissioned A. V. AVRO to design a new plane, a supersonic jet that could engage and destroy enemy interceptors before they reached their targets in North America. That jet, intended to serve as the RCAF's primary interceptor, was the Avro Arrow. Although the Aero was one of the most advanced aircraft of its era and had the potential to establish Canada as a world leader in scientific research and development, the project was ultimately cancelled. This eventually put AVRO Canada out of business and its highly skilled engineering personnel scattered. During this two-part episode, we will be highlighting the importance of the Avro Arrow in Canadian history by discussing its evolution from dream to dust and delving into the many theories as to why the Arrow project was canceled. All this will be done through the examination of the extensive material in LAC's collection.
1: This is the Avro Arrow, Canada's entry into the supersonic era. Within the short span of four years, The arrow was brought from initial design to the start of the development flight program. So vast was this project that during the next 20 minutes, we can do no more than give a series of impressions of the planning and hard work that was required.
0: Our podcast episode will be a bit longer than 20 minutes, as we will give you examples of the planning and hard work that was required but also reasons for the project's cancellation. Keep listening. By the way, that was a clip from Supersonic Sentinel, The Story of the Avro Arrow, a short film from LAC's film, video, and sound archive. We will be playing more of it throughout the episode.
2: Uh, Well, okay, just to start off, uh, my name's Palmero Campagna. I've been uh, working with the Department of National Defense for 34 years, but uh, retired uh, in 2015.
0: That was Palmiro Campagna. He is the author of three books on the Avro Arrow, the most recent being The Avro Arrow For The Record, released in 2019. You may recognize his name and voice from our two-part episode on the UFO Falcon Lake incident, which we put out in May 2019. Palmiro is no stranger to Library and Archives Canada, being a regular visitor to the research and reading rooms at 395 Wellington in Ottawa. Throughout this two-part episode, we touch on the classification and declassification of documents. LAC does not declassify documents per se, but rather reviews and releases previously restricted archival files in accordance with the Access to Information Act and the Privacy Act. In our words, we would say we open them up for consultation. These files may still contain partial redactions using legislated exemptions that protect personal and sensitive information. Thanks to Palmiro, we now have a plethora of Avro-Aero-related documents that have been opened and that allow us to uncover its cancellation and destruction. We asked Palmiro how he became interested in the Avro-Aero.
2: My interest in the Aero actually stems from when I was a a little kid. Uh, I have a vague memory of actually seeing the Aero in flight. I would have been about four or five years old at the time. And uh, over the years, I always wondered what had happened to the arrow and could never find much information uh, until about the uh, late 70s when some of the first books started to appear with uh, with information. And then in 1979, there was a a documentary that was supposed to be aired on television, which ended up getting canceled, uh, or sorry, not canceled, getting postponed because there was an election coming up and they said it could impact the election. So that kind of intrigued me as to what the heck was going on. So when I ended up here in Ottawa, I decided uh, to start checking with the archives to see if there were any documents uh, on the subject. I had read that everything had been uh, allegedly destroyed, uh, so, I wanted to find out for myself, and um, one thing led to another.
0: Documents about the Aero here at LAC? Yeah, we have a few. Later on in this episode, we will be talking to LAC employees Kyle Huth and Andrew Elliott to find out just what we have in the collection that pertains to the Avro Arrow and Avro, the company that built it. Speaking of Avro, we wanted to know how big the company was when the Avro was cancelled in 1958 And how many Canadians it employed, Palmiro tells us.
2: Right, well, just to back up just a touch, so AVRO Canada Limited came into being just after the war when the government decided that Canada should uh, design and develop its own uh, aircraft. And by 1959, actually, when the Avro Aero project uh, was cancelled, the company had grown to be the third largest company in Canada, behind Canadian Pacific Railways and um, the Aluminum Company of Canada, I believe. Uh, it consisted of a number of different subsidiaries. Uh, the two biggest, um, or the, sorry, the two that were involved in uh, aircraft design were Avro and Orenda. Avro was the uh, portion responsible for designing the fuselage of aircraft, in this case, the, the Aero and uh, Orenda was responsible for engine design and, uh, and development. So, as a third largest company, they employed between the two, Avro and Orenda, some 14,000 people, all of whom were fired the afternoon that the uh, cancellation of the arrow was announced in uh, Parliament. Um, overall, about 25,000, so an additional 11,000 people were affected. Uh, they were from different uh, subcontractors and whatnot. Uh, some estimates put the number at uh, 100,000 uh, 100, because there were over 650 subcontractors engaged in the Aero. Don't know if all of those people were fired, but if they were working specifically on the Aero project, then there's probably a good chance that they were. And um, by 1962, this third largest company ceased to exist which is why I would think that a lot of people, young folks especially today, would have never heard of AVRO Canada. They think of Bombardier when you talk about um, jet design, etc. in Canada.
0: We asked Palmiro what AVRO did between the cancellation in 1958 and the company ceasing to exist by 1962.
2: Yeah, in the intervening years uh, after the cancellation, they tried to uh, undertake a few other developments, one of which was the so-called Flying Saucer, uh, better known as the Avro Car. Uh, This was a project that um, started earlier in 1955, I believe. Uh, It was being funded by the United States Air Force and the United States Army, not Canada. Uh, Unfortunately, that project didn't really go very far. They they developed a couple of prototypes but what what was what was happening was um, I mean the thing looked like a circular you know flying saucer is what it was, but it was too unstable. Uh, after getting about three feet off the ground, it would um, it would start to uh, wobble uh, incredibly. Uh, the interesting thing about it is is that if they had put a an actual skirt around it, they would have invented the hovercraft. Uh, and this was back in the mid50s when they were you know experimenting with this thing initially. So they continued on to about 61 with the Avro car before the project was finally canceled. Uh, they tried getting into um, developing um, cars um, but that didn't really work out uh, very well. And so even, uh, they even got into, Uh, aluminum boat manufacturing, Uh, in fact I think there's still one or two other boats kicking around, Um, but that didn't take off either and basically that was the end of of Avro. Orenda on the other hand continued uh, developing, well not really developing engines, but um, producing engines. Um, They ended up being bought out by a company I believe called Magellan uh, Aerospace and um, uh, and so the name Orenda eventually uh, disappeared.
0: What other aircraft did AVRO develop during its history?
2: Right, so when the company was first uh, established in uh, 1946, they were given two two projects. One was to develop a commercial uh, jet aircraft, and the other was to develop a military aircraft. So the the civilian aircraft, uh, commercial aircraft, was known as the jetliner. And from what I can tell, the term jetliner was actually uh, developed uh, or suggested by Avro Marketing. They were not able to copyright the name because the jetliner, like the Arrow, never went into production. Uh, And it's a a story in and of itself. Um, It was the first uh, commercial intercity jet to fly in North America, August of 1949. Uh, It was the second jet to fly in the world it was beaten out by the uh, British Comet just a um, couple of weeks before its its uh, flight. Difference between the two was the Comet uh, f- uh, was transoceanic, meaning you know, from Britain to, to Canada, say, uh, whereas the jetliner, as I said, was uh, intercity. Um, interesting thing about the jetliner: it flew from one thousand, nine hundred and forty-nine to one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-six. Was being used basically as a, um, a corporate uh, jet for Avro, and then it. Was destroyed in the same way that the Avro Arrow eventually became uh, was destroyed. The cockpit of the jetliner sits at the aviation museum. But the real point here is that from 1949 to 1957, actually, there was nothing like it anywhere in North America. It was a jet, and everybody else was flying turboprop and propeller-driven uh, aircraft. So when you talk about advances or, or leads in technology, um, the Jetliner uh, was, in my view, much more of a tragedy than even the Avro Aero because we were that far ahead in, um, in that development. Interesting thing about the Jetliner, um, r- rumors were that um, it had technical flaws. It was a poor design. You know, all of this kind of thing, similar to the comments made about the arrow at some point. Um, but Jim Floyd, the guy who actually designed the uh, the jetliner, was awarded the Wright Brothers Medal uh, by the United States um, for excellence in aeronautical aerospace <laughs> engineering, specifically for the jetliner design. Um, and um, there were also suggestions that um, well, it had to be cancelled because uh, nobody would purchase the jetliner. Um, similar to what they were saying later about the Arrow. Uh, there were no buyers. Well, in fact, there were uh, people who were interested, uh, national airlines in the United States. Uh, Howard Hughes, uh, who owned Transworld Airlines at the time, uh, was really trying to, to purchase uh, the jetliner, uh, didn't get very far. Uh, and so those rumors persisted. But thanks to the National Archives, when I came here and started digging, I actually found a memo, which I don't think had seen the light of day from the day it was first written to the day that I got it declassified, and that memo was from our Joint Staff in Washington to our Minister of National Defense, it's uh, dated 1951 I believe, I've reproduced it in in my books, and in there uh, it says that the United States Air Force, with the support of all the Air Force commands in the U.S., wanted to purchase 12 jetliners, but they had approval to purchase. It wasn't just an interest. They had approval to purchase. Um, That letter, like I said, never made it to Avro. Don't know what happened to it. I can't find the uh, paper trail from the document that it's in. Now, why was the United States Air Force interested? Well, the jetliner was taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base on a demonstration uh, run, and the pilots the military pilots there were allowed to, to fly it the way they would um, their other fighter aircraft, which were subsonic uh, at the time, which the jetliner, of course, subsonic, and they loved it. So in that same letter, it says that they wanted to purchase it for uh, training purposes, potential refueling purposes, um, uh, transport, uh, etc. There were a number of reasons listed, but 12 would have given them a really good kickstart. And then with Howard Hughes coming in, had he been allowed to purchase, he was interested in some 30 or 37 of these aircraft. Uh, that thing really would have uh, you know, would have taken off. But decisions were made um, in Canada that um, they wanted Avro to focus on the CF-100, supposedly for the Korean uh, War effort, uh, which was occurring at the time. And they ordered all work on the jetliner stopped, and so only the one was built. Uh, there was a second prototype, but it, it never flew. I don't think. Uh, No, in fact, it it did not. Um, And that was the end of it. Uh, So that single jetliner still flew, as I said, until 1956. Uh, But the point being, the rumors that nobody would buy it were completely unfounded based on the documentation that that we were uncovered um, in the archives. Now, subsequent to the jetliner, as I said, they were designing the the CF-100 which they did. They produced over 600 uh, of those. It was uh, deemed one of the best uh, all-weather fighters uh, at the time. Um, it um, uh, Some 30-plus were sold to uh, the Belgian uh, Air Force. Uh, so all in all, that one was a reasonably successful uh, effort. But they decided in 1952-53 that um, they needed supersonic aircraft. The CF-100 was subsonic. And so, Talks began uh, with respect to developing a supersonic uh, aircraft, uh, basically to uh, thwart any um, supersonic bombers that might be coming from enemy uh, countries. Uh, At that time, obviously, it was the Soviet Union that was of concern.
0: The difference between a subsonic and a supersonic aircraft was that at supersonic speeds, the jet was able to break the sound barrier Meaning attaining a speed of over one thousand two hundred and thirty five kilometers per hour, also known as Mach One. <laughs> like Palmiro mentioned. Avro developed the C-102 jetliner and the CF-100 Canuck, the two-engine, all-weather interceptor. The first Canuck was flown on January 19th of 1950, and over 650 were built with Canuck fighter squadrons serving the Royal Canadian Air Force, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. In 1953, at the height of the Cold War, the RCAF commissioned Avro to design a new plane, a supersonic jet that could engage and destroy enemy interceptors before they reached their targets in North America. We asked Palmiro to give us more details on the CF 105 Avro Arrow, its possible uses, and technical capabilities.
2: Right, so <clears throat> the Avro Arrow was basically a supersonic interceptor. Uh, meaning that its, its, its purpose was to prevent enemy uh, bombers from coming across the North Pole over Canada uh, to bomb either southern portions of Canada or the United States. So it was designed to fly at a uh, Mach 2 speed, which is twice the speed of sound, uh, extremely fast at the time, um, and uh, uh, reach altitudes of sixty thousand feet to thereabouts to um, prevent these uh, enemy bombers from uh, from coming in. Um, so that's basically what what the arrow was. It was not a multi-role fighter like, say, the uh, the Hornet, the CF-18 Hornet. Um, its its mission was to fly up, intercept, and whatever. They were also looking at uh, using the arrow for pr- uh, surveillance purposes uh, because they could fit it for, for that uh, mission. Um, obviously, in peacetime, uh, it would be used to prevent uh, intrusions of our airspace, uh, whether accidental or on purpose from whomever. Uh, the fact that you had a pilot in there, uh, you could make uh, human judgment as to you know what this intrusion aircraft would, you know, was all about. As opposed to, say, uh, missiles that um, you know, once you fire them, that's too late. Um, so there were a number of other possibilities, possible uses for uh, for the arrow. Uh, they were looking at a version uh, to take it to Mach 2.5. Uh, it wasn't a question of power in the engines; it was more a question of um, reworking the uh, apparently the inlets for the engines and um, and uh, adding some heat-resistant materials in, in certain areas because the, the, big, the li- biggest limiting factor in speed at the time was the heat of friction. You're going so fast that you, know, you start to, your metals will warp and melt and whatever. Um, so at Mach 2, no problem. At Mach 2.5, probably would have needed some, some additional work uh, in that area. But they knew that, and, and that's actually all written in uh, some of the records that um that were under consideration, they were also looking at uh, a possible Mach three version uh even faster which um w- one of which looks very similar to the senior seventy one blackbird it's, uh, that's that's uh, probably the fastest aircraft in the world still is today it came out in mid sixties sixty three sixty four thereabouts um, but again that that one is primarily for surveillance uh Purposes. So there were a number of possibilities. The other thing, of course, um, had the Aero continued, and we had a military uh, design and development uh, industry, uh, they could have gotten into multi-role fighter design if, in fact, that was you know something that uh, that they might require. Uh, so there were a number of different possibilities there.
1: Supersonic aircraft are virtually flying pressure vessels. And as such, the complete aircraft structure is subject to wide variations of pressure. This fact greatly influenced the design of the structure. The effect of aerodynamic heating at supersonic speeds has also been an important factor in the design of the aircraft. Although the extent of this heating is not so great, As to make it impossible to use aluminum alloys, new alloys were used where practical to improve the performance and safety of the aircraft. For example, the large
0: surface The CF-105 Aero had technically advanced features such as the striking high delta wing, tailless configuration, as well as other leading edge aerodynamic features. The Delta wing design helped with supersonic performance and helped with providing ample lift at very high altitudes. It also provided the aircraft with plenty of surface area for more fuel, which on the Avro, as with most aircraft, is stored in the wings. To see images of the Aero as we continue talking with Palmiro, head over to LAC's Flickr page. There, you'll find photos of the Aero, as well as technical drawings and blueprints from our collection. You can access the link in the related resources on LAC's podcast page for this episode. Next, we asked Mr. Campagna, when was the first aero flown, and was it a success?
2: Yeah, so the the aero, uh, the first flight uh, was, I believe, in March of 1958, and uh, it was uh, a tremendous success, Uh, in fact, beyond expectations. Uh, It flew, it flew very well, um, and all subsequent flight tests after that uh, uh, went, uh, went went very well. They did have some problems. Um, in one of the flights, the wheels um, actually exploded on landing. Uh, I think the reason was that the pilot, uh, I think it was Jan Zarekowski at the time, uh, brought it in too quickly, and and uh, so it was a bit of a, a harder landing for perhaps. Um, Subsequent to that, there was another landing accident where the uh, wheel on the one side uh, failed to extend properly, and so the arrow sort of skidded to a halt. But again, it was a problem that was quickly fixed. Uh, During one of uh, Zyrkowski's flights, uh, just as he was taking off uh, to to climb, the arrow suddenly dipped, and he was able to stabilize it and get it back and what had happened there was some control switch um, had been inadvertently uh, connected backwards but again these were small things that uh, you know one would have expected uh, greater problems than that uh, given that this was the first time that we had designed a supersonic uh, aircraft uh, and yet uh, everything went well and i think it was a testament to the way that. Uh, everything was tested prior to the actual uh, first flights.
0: The test pilot that Palmiro mentioned was Jan Zurichowski. The first Canadian to break the sound barrier, Zurichowski was Avro's chief development test pilot. On March 25, 1958, he made the maiden flight of the first aero called rl one He ended up flying most of the arrows that were built and racked up more than 23 hours in the air with them. Palmiro, how many arrows were built and eventually flown?
2: So five aircraft were built, five were flown. Uh, I think the total between the five of them uh, in terms of hours in the air was only on the order of 77 or or something like that, 77 hours. So not a lot of time in the air. Obviously, there was... um, a lot more to do. Um, the sixth arrow, number 206, would have been the first one to fly with the Iroquois engines. So I should backtrack a touch. The five that flew had the Pratt and Whitney J75 engine installed. This was an engine that uh, was proven, uh, and, the, uh, and the reason they wanted it in the air in those first five was because they wanted a proven engine in an unproven airframe. Uh, to sort of minimize risks of you know accident, uh, what have you, but it was underpowered for the arrow, and yet even with this underpowered engine, uh, they were still uh, flying it at um, you know incredible speeds and, and whatnot. Uh, 206 with the with the Iroquois uh, never did uh, fly. Uh, the axe came down before they had a chance to um, uh, really finish building it. Uh, and then you know, give it the taxi trials and whatnot. When I say finish building it, what I mean there, um, I've published one document that talks about the status of the aircraft when they were um, uh, supposed to be disassembled and destroyed and whatnot. Uh, and it talks about you know the, uh, the first five, and then it says the partially assembled uh, 206. What, what's meant there, and I only found this out in another document that I came across of course, after the book was published, unfortunately, uh, was that 206 was actually sitting there. They were waiting for the second Iroquois engine to be installed, uh, actually, to be delivered to the company. They were, it was a matter of days for that delivery when the axe came down. So, if that didn't happen, the engine would have shown up, they would have installed it, done their static tests, ground tests, whatnot, and then moved on to taxi trials and then eventual uh, first flight.
0: Here's a quote from then-Prime Minister John Diefenbaker in 1958, taken from A.V. Row documents held at L.A.C. The Aero aircraft and the Aeroqua engine appear now to be better than any alternative expected to be ready by 1961. The Aero supersonic plane has already thrilled us with its performance, its promise, and its proof of ability in design and technology. The Avro Aero seemed to be a very successful supersonic airplane. As Palmiro says in his book, it represented the state-of-the-art in aeronautical technology and engine, airframe, and flight control designs. It was extremely advanced for its time. Bill Gunston, British aviation expert and editor of Flight magazine in the 50s, had this to say about the Canadian-built Aero. In its planning, design, and flight test program, this fighter, in almost every way the most advanced of all the fighters of the 1950s, was as impressive and successful as any aircraft in history. Was there any interest from other countries in purchasing the Aero? Palmiro tells us.
2: So, this is the interesting thing. Um, Jan Zurichowski, the pilot, uh, when I had a chance to, to speak with him many years ago, I asked him that question. And he basically said that back then, uh, you really had to have the aircraft in service in your own country for a few years to demonstrate its capabilities, etc., you know, before going forward to try and uh, and sell it. Uh, and, and in a sense, that almost harkens back to the jetliner a bit because they had it on these demonstration runs and whatnot, and people were able to see it and pilots were able to fly it, and, you know, etc. That never happened with the Arrow. Uh, they never got that chance, but. So it's hard to say whether or not somebody, some other country would have been interested. Uh, I know Britain uh, kept uh, uh, advising Canada to continue building the aero. Perhaps they might have been interested. Uh, the Norwegians maybe, uh, if they had a need for uh, interceptors as well. Um, on the other side of it, the engine, the Iroquois engine, um, France was actually interested in the Iroquois and they wanted to get uh, a number of prototypes uh, to test in their uh, Mirage series of uh, jet um, military aircraft. What happened there was when they started hearing rumors that the whole project might be cancelled uh, and there were a lot of those circulating at the time, they shut down that uh, that interest and so the Iroquois never, never made it. Uh, again, had the cancellation not happened they would have gotten the Iroquois, who knows, they might have purchased it outright because the Iroquois was uh, and a highly advanced, state-of-the-art um, uh, jet engine, and um, that would have provided a lot of uh, revenue and whatnot um, you know, if it had been allowed to go, but we didn't get there.
0: It's time we introduced our next two guests. They are Archival Assistant Kyle Huth and Archivist Andrew Elliott, to LAC employees and self-proclaimed Avro Aero enthusiasts. They'll be able to give us more details on the documents and collection material we have on the Avro Aero here at LAC. First up, to cover some of the items we have on the government side of things is Kyle Huth.
3: We have a variety of uh, textual records relating to the Aero from different departments, be it. Um Department of National Defense, uh, Department of Defense Procurement, uh, there's stuff from Department of Secretary of State, uh, from finance. A lot of it's the correspondence between uh, Avro and the other suppliers and the government of Canada. And there's a lot of interesting records in there when it comes down to the development and also looking at the costing of the aircraft showing back as far as 1955 and 57, And there's also, towards the time of the cancellation, we have documentation which relates to plans for the Arrow. What what they were going to do with the five completed arrows to see, okay, can we give them to the United Kingdom? Can we keep them? Uh, Does the National Research Council want to keep them for high-speed test aircraft? So those records are all available to the public um, in our collection. Now we have stuff that has been still uh, restricted, which is code 32 material. That can be accessed by the public if they do an ATIP request or an access to information request.
0: More information on how to make a formal request under the Access to Information Act can be found on our website. Here's Andrew Elliott.
4: Yeah, so um, on the private side, uh, we now do have um, the William Kuzik phone and also the um, uh, Ralph Wachter phone. And these are important because up until recently, we did not have... Um, the records of of people who worked for the company um, at Library and Archives Canada, they were out. The two
0: private uh, collections that Andrew mentions uh, are and the Ralph Wachner and uh, William Kuzik uh, Funk.
4: Um, the
0: These are the private or collections or of two employees area. at Aviro um, Canada. Both studied aeronautical engineering at the University of, of Toronto, graduating in the late 40s and cost got cost jobs with the, the company almost immediately. Um, While at Avro, Wachner and Kuzik were flight test engineers in the flight Uh, test uh, research department. Here, their principal activity was data collection. Many of their reports dealt with the technical challenges of high-speed flight and the related phenomena that can occur. Part of what we have from them here at LAC is considerable data and graphs indicating performance and effects Particularly in relation to airspeed and high speed performance on the C one hundred two jetliner, the C F one hundred Canuck, and the Arrow. There are textual records, photographic material, technical drawings, cartographic material, and publications relating to the scientific research. When the plant closed in nineteen fifty nine, Walkner and Kuzik, like many other employees, found jobs in aeronautical engineering companies in the United States where they would stay through the 1960s.
4: Uh, what's also interesting uh, with regards to uh, the, I think it's the Ralph Walker collection, uh, it has um, employee news newsletters going from, like, the late 40s right through the 50s. So, document, um, documenting for employees... Um, uh, really what was going on at the plant uh, in Malton, um, not only just for the Arrow, but also for the CF-100 and also uh, the um, original jetliner as well. I can add to that. um, There's also
3: the uh, John D. Harbin Harbin, uh, phone which has... (coughs) He was a journalist who was working on a book about the Arrow. Uh, the book never actually got published, but because of him, we have a number of photographs of the Arrow from the Avro company, but as well uh, photographs of Soviet aircraft uh, that would have been sort of the adversary of the Arrow had uh, it gone operational.
0: Check out the related links section on the podcast page for this episode to learn more about what we have here at Library and Archives Canada on the Avro Arrow. There are links to the individual fonds we have mentioned, plus blog articles written by Andrew and Kyle, and also a selection of links to the many documents on the arrow we hold here at LAC. We asked Andrew how LAC came to acquire this material from the Wachner and Kuzik families.
4: So in the case of um, William Kuzik, his nephew uh, donated material, back, uh, offered material back in uh, 2015, I think it was uh, initially, and then um, the initial um, uh, acquisition offer was. Then um, there have been has been a sub- subsequent accrual uh, of material because he's he's found he found material in uh, his um, uh, uncle's. Uh, uh, house that he's going through his uncle's house, his uncle, uh, William Kuzik died uh, back in, uh, 1990, so these have been hanging around the house for, for a while. Um, interestingly, um, Ralph, uh, David Wachter, Ralph Wachter's son, not that long after, probably 2016, um, made an offer of, of his father's records. His father, um, died, uh, more recently in 2012, and um david Walker was also um uh writing a book about his father's uh, career so he actually um so he uses some of the material uh, which he uh for this book called flight test the avro arrow and the career in aeronautical engineering so that book came out just slightly slightly before we acquired the material here at lac
1: With its advanced electronic system and guided missiles, this supersonic sentinel is designed to guard the Arctic approaches to the Western Hemisphere. The success of the Avro Arrow marks a new chapter in the history of the Canadian aviation industry and a new contribution to Western defense.
0: Coming up in part two.
2: Okay, this is where things get interesting <laughs> and where the archives plays a major role, in, at least in my in my view.
1: I knew that 10,000 men and women would be out of work ultimately by this decision. I knew that a great industry that had been established would be weakened, but it was right to end it.
2: When you look at the documents, uh, the archival record from both Canada and the United States, you will see, for lack of a better term, American fingerprints all over the place. So here we are, you know, not long after we've killed the arrow, all of a sudden airplanes are important again and we need airplanes. Had they waited and gotten this information, I'm convinced we would have arrows flying around I mean, this is incredible. And the fact that the Prime Minister was given incorrect information really makes you wonder about you know, the intelligence uh, that's going on here.
0: Stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we start the process of decoding the mystery of why the Aero, Aero project was ultimately canceled. What were the reasons given? What sort of impact did the cancellation have on industry in Canada? And was abandoning the program the right decision? Palmiro Campagna returns to answer some of these questions and to put to rest some of the persistent rumors that continue to swirl around the aircraft and the cancellation. If you'd like to learn more about the Avro Aero at Library and Archives Canada, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. On the episode page for this podcast, you will find a number of links related to the arrow, including our Flickr album, which highlights a selection of photos from our collection. Thank you for being with us. I'm Josie Arnold, your host. You've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thank you to our guests today, Palmiro Campagna, Kyle Huth, and Andrew Elliott. Special thanks also to Isabelle Larocque for her contributions to this episode. All music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was produced and engineered by David Knox. If you liked this episode, you are invited to subscribe to the podcast. You can do it through the RSS feed located on our website, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're interested in listening to the French equivalent of our podcast, you can find French versions of all our episodes on our website, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Simply search for Découvrez Bibliothèque et Archives Canada. For more information on our podcasts, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts.